Now, Job continues in chapter 7 to answer this man, Eliphaz, and he says here, Is there not an appointed time to man upon earth? Are not his days also like the days of an hireling? As a servant earnestly desireth the shadow, and as an hireling looketh for the reward of his work, so am I made to possess months of vanity, and wearisome nights are appointed to me. In other words, there seems to be no surcease from his sorrow and from his pain. He's a sick man, by the way, and actually a real sick man at this time. And they have ignored that. They have not attempted to deal with him at this because he found no comfort in any quarter. Even his wife, his helpmate, has suggested suicide. And when his world caved in, Around his head, he became a distraught and frustrated man to be pitied, and pain racked his body. Fever drove him actually to periods of delirium, and it was difficult for this man to maintain his equilibrium. Listen to him now here in chapter 7, what he says in verse 4. He says, "'When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise, and the night be gone? And I am full of tossings to and fro unto the dawnings of the day.'" My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. In other words, he felt that he had an incurable disease and probably did have, and that the end was coming and it wasn't far away. Now, in this wretched condition, this first friend has paid no attention to that at all. And they have come, and they have not really ministered to him. And I'm not going to say they're not real friends. The point is, they just didn't understand. Someone has said, a friend is one who knows you and still loves you. But he must know you. These friends didn't know Job. And this is something that is quite interesting. Job says, you're nothing in the world but a mirage in a desert. And you're not even talking to my problem at all. And they, of course, didn't know God. We'll see that as we move along. Finally, when God broke through, he could say that this man had certainly not received very good advice or help at all. Now, he says here that his physical condition should have called forth from them sympathy at least. And the fact of the matter is that If he's sinned, he wants them to help him. Now, listen to him as he talks to them. And I'm just hitting high points here, by the way, in this section of Job, because we're going to move through like that. This is actually not what I would call a study in the book of Job. I would actually like to spend a year or two years in this book. I think it's just as rich as cream, and it's worthy of a great deal of study. And it's a very profound book, too, by the way. Now, he says here, and I'll begin reading it, verse 15. So that my soul chooseth strangling and death rather than life. This man now very frankly says, I want to die. And he says, I loathe it. I shall not live always. Let me alone for my days are vanity. Let me die in peace, in other words. And then he goes on in verse 17, "...what is man that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldst set thine heart upon him, and that thou shouldst visit him every morning, and try him, 
every moment. And he says he wished God would let him alone. He senses that he is being tried, but he hasn't any notion what's back of it at all. And he says, how long wilt thou not depart from me, nor let me alone till I swallow down my spittle? My, isn't that a picture of this man? He said, just leave me alone. Just let me alone in my own misery. And now he's going to say this to them. If you're raising a question of my sin, I'm not saying I'm guiltless. He says, I have sinned. But why select me for the special attack as a notorious sinner? Why make my life a burden when I'm not that kind of a sinner? The thing that you should do is show mercy to me. Now, listen to him here. He says, how long wilt thou not depart from me, nor let me alone, till I swallow down my spittle? I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee? He says, I admit I'm a sinner. O thou preserver of man, why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I'm a burden to myself? He's saying he's getting more than he deserves. Now, the last verse, verse 21. And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. And what he's saying now to these men, I'd be glad and I'd die. You fellows can't bother me then. Now, you can see that there is a breaking down of Job. There's a breaking down of his integrity, actually, that is taking place here. And when a man has his own integrity broken down, then he is an easy mark, of course, for Satan. And that is the thing that happens to many a man that attempts to fight life alone, begins to hit the bottle or drop into sin. And before long, why, the devil has got him because he's broken the man's integrity down. And he gets in the same situation Job is. Now, will Job break under all of this? Now, the next man that makes his attack upon Job is Bildad. And we find his argument in chapter 8. Now, let me say a word about him. He is what you would call a traditionalist. Bildad is a man that rests upon the past. His argument here is, verse 8, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. Now, he attempts to pick up the old rocks and stones of geology and look at them and tell you what happened years ago and what's going to happen because of that. Actually, the evolutionist is really a traditionalist. Great many people do not recognize that. But he rests upon the past. And, of course, he's making certain premises that he can't prove, by the way. And today... The premises are actually assumed. There are only two explanations for the origin of this universe. One, of course, is creation, and the other is speculation. Now, evolution is speculation, and it's very nice to be able to take up this bone and try to date it and then try to classify it belonging to this period and this development of man. But who knows? This book here is going to raise the question. In fact, God will raise the question even to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And so this man here, he will use the expression. 
He'll say, when I was young. And he says, we've been doing it this way. Now, he knew a lot of old sayings and proverbs and pious platitudes, and he offers actually nothing new at all. But actually, he's a very crude fellow, and he's more crude, by the way, than Eliphaz was. And he breaks in upon this man, and actually, he hurts him a great deal, and he doesn't help him at all. Now, this is Bildad, who's supposed to have been his friend. I'm reading now verse 1, chapter 8. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Now, very frankly, these men really get in some good ones, we would say today. This is real repartee, by the way. This is a real rap session that they are having here. And they're brilliant men. To tell the truth, Bildad puts in the knife here and twists it just a little. He says, How long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Why, he says, Job, to listen to you is just like listen to the wind blow. You're a windy individual. And I would say all of them are that, including Job. And we're going to see that there is something wrong with Job, but we'll come to that a little later. Now, will you notice this? He says, How long wilt thou speak these things? How long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? I'd say that was a good one. That was good for a laugh. As I said before, a crowd had gathered around by this time. And this was as interesting to those people as a football game or a basketball game would be today. And you can see they're really uncivilized. And the intellectual contest you see, appeal to them, not a physical contest. They really are uncivilized, aren't they? They are not up to it. They are not really civilized like we are today. Now, listen to them. Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Now, what's he coming to? What he's really saying is, Job, you're getting exactly what's coming to you. You are trying to defend yourself, and it means that there's some great sin in your life and you're getting exactly what you deserve. Now listen to him. If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression. Now that's an awful thing to say. He's suggesting that the reason Job's children were destroyed was because they were sinners. Now I can't think of anything that had hurt more than that. And especially this man didn't know that. And we know by this time, since God let us in on it at the beginning... They weren't destroyed for that reason. Now will you notice, verse 5, If thou would seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Now, Job, if you were lily white, as you're given the impression, why, God would hear your prayer and heal you and restore you. But the thing is, there must be something radically wrong. Now he says to him, verse 7, Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. And by the way, that's what's going to happen. It will greatly increase. God's going to double everything he had at the end. But that's what this man is saying now to him. Verse 8, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of the Father. 
Now he's going back and give you the old evolutionary theory. <laughs> and he's going to say that these things all work according to law. There are quite a few of these laws that he'd put down, and they're old sayings. Listen to him. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Now, he doesn't mean he doesn't know. He means that Job doesn't know. We are but of yesterday and know nothing. And that, by the way, is a true statement. But that was true of this man Bildad. And it's true of the evolutionists today. And it's true of you and me. We are but of yesterday. Actually, man on this earth is a Johnny-come-lately. He hadn't been around very long. And God just hasn't seen fit to tell you what he was doing back yonder a million years ago. And after all, I'm not interested, frankly, in what he did a million years ago. I'm very much interested in what he's going to be doing a million years from today because I expect to be around for that. And that's the thing that should interest us. And by the way, that is the thing here that separates this man from Paul, for instance. Now, Paul, you know, his philosophy pointed to the future and to Christ. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But this man here, he goes back to the past, you see. He says, verse 10, "...shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart?" In other words, that old rock that they brought back from the moon, you better listen to it. It can tell you something. I don't know about you, but I don't think that rock's going to tell us very much. I understand down in Houston, Texas, among some of the scientists down there, they've made the statement, why, there are rocks out in West Texas that are just exactly like these rocks. And my point is, why don't they run a truck out to West Texas and pick up those rocks and quit spending all the money going to the moon? But if they want to go, why, let them go. But the point is, these things don't really teach you what you should know. It's like this medical doctor wrote, and this man knows all about surgery. But the important thing, the Word of God and eternal things, he very frankly says he doesn't know about them. And this idea of man playing with a few little rocks and a few little bones down here, and then pretend that they know how the earth began and all of its development, may I say to you, that at its face value ought to be dismissed because man is assuming more than he possibly could know. Now, will you notice, he's going to become very scientific. Listen to him. Can the rush grow up without mire? And the answer to that's obvious. I mean, any third grader would know that. Can the flag grow without water? I've learned that in California. I have to water my flags that are out by my back fence. You just got to water them if they're going to grow. This is profound wisdom, but who doesn't know this? Then he goes on. Whilst it is yet in his greenness and not come down, it withereth before any other herb. Well, we all know that, Bildad. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. Now, he's crude. He calls Job a hypocrite. He's been covering up, he says. And that, of course, is not true. Now, verse 14, "...whose hope shall be cut off." and whose trust shall be a spider's web. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. Job, he says, has been leaning against a spider's web. He's been a hypocrite, putting up a front, and this trouble has come now. Well, Job hasn't been. 
And so he moves on talking in this same vein. And verse 20, he says, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. Now, wait just a minute. Is that actually true? Well, he sure helped me, and I've been an evildoer. He saved me, friends. And will God cast away a perfect man? No, he won't. But where is the perfect man? There's none. There's none righteous. No, not one. You see, what he says is true, but it's not true. When you pour it in the test tube of life and pour the acid of experience upon it, it just isn't true. Till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. Now, listen to him, the last verse. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. And what he's saying, Job, you're really coming to nothing because you're a great sinner. Now, this is not very helpful for a man that's in the position Job is. You see, Bildad does not know God. He does not know Job. And he does not really know himself. He's a traditionalist. He thinks that he can put a rock under a microscope and tell you how the world began. He doesn't know. He's a smart boy, but he doesn't know, you see... You put yourself in the place of God. Now, Job's going to answer this man next chapter. We're going to see that Job is pretty good at coming back, but he's getting awfully weary of this that's happening. But he has a few good things to say. Now, we come in chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Job. We have the answer of Job to Bildad. Bildad, as we saw, had not met the problem of Job at all. Job makes it very clear that they hadn't met his need. In fact, they were not even talking to his problem at all. And Job, at this point, makes it clear he makes no claim to perfection, and he knows that he cannot defend himself before God. But he needs now someone on his side to present his case. And we'll note here that this man has a real heart cry for somebody to be his mediator and his intercessor. In other words, we're going to hear Job's heart cry for Christ in this particular section here. Now, as we come here to chapter 9, verse 1, let me read. Job answered and said, I know it is of a truth. But how should man be just with God? In other words, what he's saying to this man is that a lot of the things that you are saying, they're true. But actually, you haven't spoken into my problem here. You haven't met my need at all. In a general way, you've spoken true things. But in other words, I know it's of a truth. But you're not talking to my problem. How am I to be just with God? This man surely needed the gospel, didn't he, at this point? He needed to know how a man could be just with God. And that is his problem. Now, he says here, I want some questions answered. I have some questions. And the very thing is that this man Bildad certainly didn't answer any questions for him at all. So now let's listen to Job. He's speaking now of God, and he says, If he will contend with me, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart, 
and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him, and hath prospered. Now, Job says, I don't pretend, if you think that I'm trying to put up a front before God, you are wrong because of the fact I know that I can't contend with him. And he could ask me a question I'd never be able to answer, but I want answers to my questions, and I want him to answer them. Because God is far removed from me, he says, He is one that he removeth mountains, and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger. He shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble. He commandeth the sun, and it riseth not. And he sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. This is, may I say, a tremendous picture of God here as a creator. Now, Job knew him as a creator, but Job knows nothing about his tender mercy at this time at all. And he gives this picture here, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Apparently, Job did know something about the stars. But you can see that this man, though he knew something about the stars, he's not attempting to say that he's in the situation he's in because he was born under a certain star. That's without doubt one of the most foolish things And even Shakespeare could answer that. You remember that Brutus was talking it over with Mark Antony, and he said to him, it's not in our stars, but it's in ourselves that we are underlings. And it's not in our stars that he's in the situation. But he recognized that God was the creator of the stars. Now, he says here, Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. The whole point is that God is a spirit, and that you can't see him at all. Job had learned a great lesson, and he knew something about God as creator. But that's about all. He says, if God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him. Job says, I wouldn't stand a chance coming in his presence. I wouldn't know what to say. And he says, if I had called and he'd answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice. Job says, I wouldn't know what to say if he did speak to me. For he breaketh me with a tempest and multiplieth my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but filleth me with bitterness. Now, if I speak of strength, lo, he's strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? He's saying here, how in the world will I plead my case before him? Now, verse 20, if I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. In other words, Job says, if I try to pretend I'm perfect, while my mouth will condemn me. But we're going to find that Job had a high estimation of himself. We'll come to that later. Believe me, he did have a high estimation of himself. He is not the man who said, 
I know that within me, that is within my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. He's not saying he's perfect, but he's contending that he's a pretty good man. In fact, a righteous man, by the way. But he says, I recognize that if I came before God, I wouldn't be able to defend myself. Now, that is the position that a great many men are in today that do not know the Word of God at all. They feel like they'll be able to stand before God and that they will be able to meet His standard and that they are actually today well-pleasing to Him. I remember an oil man in Nashville, Tennessee. We used to play volleyball there. I did three nights a week with a group of businessmen. He was one of the businessmen. And this man was a godless man, although he was a church member. I've never met anyone more godless than he was. And he one night started an argument with me before everyone that was present there, that is, when we were in the locker room. He and I were always on opposite sides. And very candidly, he didn't like for me to beat him. And so that night he had had a real shellacking. He'd been really been beaten. So he began to argue with me, and he said to me, I heard that you speak, and I had a morning devotion on radio way back in those days, and he said to me, says, I heard you speaking on that. And he says, you've got a religion whereby you talk about men are sinners, and they have to come to Christ to be saved. He said, I don't believe that stuff. He says, I believe in helping people, and that's my religion today. Now, he says, in my business, he said, I give men jobs. I pay them money so they can buy beans and put beans on their table. And he says, I think that's better than what you got to offer. Well, how do you answer a man like that before a group of men, and some of them church members to be sure, but most of them godless men and unsaved men? Well, it was very difficult to answer until in about a year's time, One night, we were all in the locker room, and that man was not there. The reason he was not there, he was in jail. They had arrested him for the way he'd been conducting his business. He had defrauded not only the government, but his own employees. And I never shall forget another godless man there. He says, calling him by his name. He says, well, I don't think he'd have much of a chance before God. He didn't do so well before the judge so-and-so over here the other day. And they found out he really wasn't putting beans on the plates of his employees. He was really taking beans off of the plate. That really shook those men. And very candidly, I saw several of them in church services. I had the privilege of leading one out of the crowd to the Lord after that. But the interesting thing is, you see, what a misconception they have of God, that somehow or another they're going to be able to please him. Now, actually, Job felt that he would be able to stand before God, but he didn't know how he would defend himself. Now he gives really a heart cry for Christ. And I drop down now to verse 32 here. He says, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Now what he's saying is this. He'd already said, If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. In other words, when I come in God's presence, he's going to think of something that I'm not thinking of right now. And I don't think I'll be able to answer him. Now, if he was a man, I could talk to him. 
And that's the reason God became a man, friends, so you could talk to him, so that you and I would understand God. And he'd be able to communicate to us and show to us that we don't meet God's standard. The only man who ever met God's standard was Jesus Christ. And none of us can come up to his standard at all. That's the curse of these plays and the books that have been written in recent years. Liberalism has had it for years that Jesus was just a man. And they insinuate today that he was a sinner. And the only place they find the sin, it's not in the Word of God, they find it in their own evil, dirty hearts. Because Jesus Christ was without sin, you see. But he was a man. And I can go to him because he died for me on the cross. And he shows me by his life I can't meet God's standards. And I need a Savior. And by his death, he saves me. And that's what Job is saying. For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. Job is saying, I wouldn't stand a chance. He's God and I'm man. But now he's man, friends. Now he says, neither is there any daysman betwixt us. There's no mediator between us. Somebody that might lay his hand upon us both. Job says, if there was only someone that could take his hand and put it in the hand of God, and there was someone that could put his hand in my hand and bring us together, and if he could do that, then I'd have a mediator. And the Word of God says, Paul said to a young preacher, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, that song that says, put your hand in the hand of the man of Galilee is only half true. You must remember that the man of Galilee has another hand, and that hand is in the hand of God, because that is the hand of God, my friend. He is the God-man. What a glorious, wonderful plea this is of this man here. Now he continues on here in chapter 10. Very frankly, what he's saying is just simply this. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 10. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Now Job says, in the meantime, since I don't have a mediator, since there's no man to represent me before God, he says, I'm just right here in this life. I just speak in the bitterness of my soul. I'm weary of life. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel. I'm not hiding it at all. And he's saying to these men, you must understand, he's already said it before to Eliphaz, that a man's in the condition I'm in doesn't put on. I'm not playing the hypocrite now when I tell you my sad plight, my condition. Listen to him here now. Verse 2, I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Well, God's going to answer him on that before he's through, by the way. God's going to show him. And this man's going to find out something about himself and something that all of us need to find out about ourselves. Verse 3, Is it good unto thee that thou shouldst oppress, that thou shouldst despise the work of thine hands and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? In other words, Job says, I can't understand why I have to suffer so, and there are wicked men that are not suffering. And by the way, that's the problem 
that confronted David. That's a problem that's confronted me. I have wondered sometimes as a pastor, why does God let certain men, wonderful godly men, because I've known them, and he's permitted them to suffer. And there have been other godless men, even men in the church, that get by actually with sin. They do for a time at least. But I notice, after all, it catches up with them. I have observed that if you give God time, he'll deal with them. But it's something that causes you to ask questions, you see. Now, this book faces up to life. It's right down where the rubber meets the road. In fact, in the book of Job, you get right down to the nitty-gritty, my friends. Now, he begins to bewail his condition and recognize his sad plight, and he looks like he's been neglected of God. He says in verse 4, "'Hast thou eyes of flesh, or seest thou as a man see it?' And his whole point is, I believe God just doesn't see me in my real condition. You see, that's another reason that Christ became a man down here. God became a man. Why? So I'd know there's a man today in the glory that knows me. He knows how I feel. There's not a pulsation that ever entered the human breast that Jesus Christ did not feel when he was here on this earth. So he knows how I feel, knows how you feel. And then he goes on here, Job, in verse 5, Are thy days as the days of man? Are thy years as man's days, that thou inquirest after mine iniquity and searchest after my sin? Job is beginning now to defend himself. He's going over on the defense, and he's not willing to admit that there's great sin in his life. And there was but not what we would label great sin. Listen to him now. Thou knowest that I'm not wicked, and there's none that can deliver out of thine hand. And Job says, I find myself in a pretty awkward situation. God knows I'm not wicked, and I can't get out of his hand. I'm going through all of this. Why should I go through all of this? Well, here's a man that needed a little humility, and God's going to give him a little humility. And have you ever noticed that humbleness and patience are something that he just doesn't hand out to you on a silver platter with a silver spoon there for you to lap it up? You don't become humble that way. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, patience and humility both. But the only way is by experience in this life that you and I can become patient and become humble. And God's going to do both of these things for this man Job. Now, I know that you're going to hear a little bit later over here about the patience of Job. You remember, James says, you've heard of the patience of Job. He also says, you've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord's very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, may I say this, had it just simply been a question of Job's patience, that would have been just something for his self-confidence and his conceit. But the point is this, that actually Job wasn't patient. That broke down, by the way. And he's crying out to God. His patience didn't last. But when you see the end of the Lord, then, my friend, you begin to see God was making him patient. And God was giving him humility. And God does that, you see. Now, this man here says this, and I'm going to have to drop down now to verse 19, 
he says, I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Now he's back at the thing that he started out with. And he, by the way, will stay in this position part of the way through this book. During this testing, to him, death is something to be desired. And to him, death would put him out of his misery. It would get him away from this scene. And he just welcomes it as a sleep, as something that would just put him in a place of unconsciousness. And if you think you can draw something from this book to sustain soul sleep, you're entirely wrong. Because you're going to find out before he gets through, and I'm running ahead to say this, Job is going to say this, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that in my flesh I shall see God. My friend, this book doesn't teach soul sleep at all. But here is a man that's wishing that that would happen to him. I wish he said I hadn't been born. And that's something that you can wish. Job not only did that, but actually Elijah wished that, and Jonah wished that, but it won't do you a better good. Do you know if you wish you hadn't been born, it won't undo it at all. You've been born. <laughs> That's really a waste of time. And, by the way, wishing that you were dead won't help either. Because no one ever died by wishing they were dead. And I always suspect that 99 out of 100 of us, when we wish we were dead, we don't really mean it. We're just talking. And I'm of the opinion that when Job is faced to it here, he really didn't mean he wish he was dead. But right now, he's pouring out his soul. And there is a breaking down of the dignity of this man. God's going to have to get at a pretty hard heart here. And do you know a lot of the saints have proud, hard hearts today? And sometimes God has to deal with us like that. Now, friends, we come today to the 11th chapter of the book of Job. We have been looking at the visit that his three friends have made to him in his deep grief and sorrow. And we come to the last one of those friends. His name is Zophar. And Zophar is a legalist. He assumes... And rightly so, as far as it goes, that God works according to measure, to law. He pretends to know what God will do in a given circumstance. He's different, I think, from Bildad. Bildad is a traditionalist. You just go back and look at what's happened in the past. And he has a scientific mind that would look at rocks and tell you how old the earth is and think that he knows quite a few things because he does know some things. Now, Zophar has a scientific mind too, but he puts the emphasis on the laws of God, that God works according to law and number, or better still, probably if you bring him up to date, he'd be more or less of an atheist. He would assume that this is a universe that's following law. He doesn't tell us who made the law or where it came from, but that we're in a universe that follows law. And by the way, you can't have law without somebody making the law. But nevertheless, they assume that this physical universe is following through in law. 
And he's one of these fellows that, well, you ask me another <laughs> type. That's an individual, you know, that I have all the answer. He knows all the answers. Now, Zophar's first discourse here is the voice of legalism. He holds here that God is bound by laws and that he never operates beyond the circumference of his own laws. And I suppose that he's the senior member of the group. And he speaks with a dogmatic finality that's even more candid and crude than that of Bildad. Now, notice what he does here as we begin in verse 1. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite and said, Should not the multitudes of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? These men come up with some very striking statements and some of them that you wish you'd thought of yourself. That is, they have a way of putting that actually, which is true. Now, should not the multitude of words be answered? Now, what he's saying is just simply this, that Job is covering his sin with words. Well, Job has tried to make it clear that a man in his condition, suffering as he is, is not apt to put up a front. But this man ignores that, and he says, should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified just because you're talking your way out of this situation? Now, there are men that do that, that are unable to talk their way out of a situation, and they're able by a clever manipulation of words. That's the way some lawyers, you know, win cases in court. It's just the cleverness of the lawyer and not actually the fact that justice is being done at all. Now, this man goes even a step farther. He says, verse 3, "...should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed?" In other words, he's accusing Job of being a liar. And he not only accuses him of being a hypocrite, but he accuses him now of being a liar. And that's more crude than even Bildad was. Bildad said he was a hypocrite, but never called him a liar. Now he says, For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. Now, this man is going to take the position that he is more or less on the inside. That is, he has a very pious position. He knows what God would do under a certain circumstance. And Job's on the outside. He's not on the inside. And therefore, he wouldn't be able to know. And for that very reason, his feeling is that Job ought to listen to him because he has the final word. And his word, of course, is God's word. I had a letter the other day from a man, and it was a rather crude letter itself, but the man was rebuking me for a position that I held, and he said because I held that position meant that I not only was a very ignorant man, but that also I had no spiritual discernment whatsoever. And then he proceeded to give me his interpretation. And then when he finished giving me his interpretation, he said, Now, 
I'm going to see whether you will listen to the Holy Spirit or not. Now, wasn't that interesting? That man claimed to be the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if I didn't listen to him, it meant that I was not listening to God. And he accused me in the course of the letter of taking the position that I knew it all and that I was being very dogmatic. May I say to you, I'm confident, as I read that letter, that that man had no notion at all that he himself was doing the very thing that he accused me of doing and that he claimed to be on the inside and that I was very much on the outside. Now, regardless of the facts of the case, and granted that the man did have inside information that I do not have access to, he certainly was not proceeding in a way to be helpful to me. In fact, he was not very helpful to me. That letter found its way into the round filing cabinet I have here in my office. In common colloquialism of the day, it's called a wastebasket. And I put it there because I felt that he had no message for me. Now, I don't think Zophar has a message for Job at all. And Job's going to make it clear that he doesn't have a message for him at all. Now, listen to him as he proceeds here in verse 5. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. And, of course, if God did, he'd say the same thing Zophar was saying here. And since God wasn't speaking, Zophar would speak for him. Now, will you notice? And that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know, therefore, that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Now, that, may I say to you, is not a very comforting blow to give this man Job at this time. In fact, the matter is, this was very harsh. He's saying to him, you're not getting half what's coming to you, because actually you're lots worse. The fact you're suffering as much as you are just shows that you're lots worse than we even dream you are, and you're not really getting what's coming to you. That's not very helpful, I would say, to a man in Job's condition. And you must remember that all the time here, Job is a sick man, and he's in desperate pain during all this time. And he actually thinks he might expire at any moment. One moment he hopes he will, and we'll see that another moment he's not so anxious to expire. Verse 7, he says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty under perfection? And may I say to you, that's a great statement. But as Job's going to tell him, who doesn't know this? It's a marvelous statement. No man can discover God. The very interesting thing is we need to recognize what a profound statement this is. You see, God never had a Columbus. Nobody ever discovered him. God is revealed. And the only way you can know about God is what he is pleased to reveal of himself. And I've come to the conclusion he's revealed very little of himself to us. And in fact, the little he's revealed to us has some of us so awestruck and some so confused, you can see why he didn't reveal any more. But you will never be able to find out God by starting out like Columbus did, nor will you be able to put out under in space a Sputnik as Russia did, and then they published in 
their paper that they hadn't discovered God out there in space, and they assumed he was not there. May I say to you, canst thou be searching, find out God? You can put those little gadgets out in space, but they're not going to find God. I mean, that's absurd. And man today cannot pour anything in a test tube or look at anything under a microscope or penetrate out under through a telescope. He's not going to be able to discover God. That's not the way. God must reveal himself to man. This is a profound statement. But Job's going to tell him who didn't know this. Well, verse 8, It is as high as heaven that canst thou do. Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And this is a tremendous discourse he's giving here, but it's not touching the need of Job at all. And we'll see that in just a moment. Now he says, if he cut off and shut up or gather together, then who can hinder him? For he knoweth vain man. He seeth wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For a vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. Now, he is, of course, speaking of Job and not himself here. He himself feels like he has the answers. Verse 13, If thou prepare thine heart, stretch out thine hands toward him. If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. All three of his friends assume that, that Job was covering up. And that was not it at all. They did not, of course, understand God. They didn't understand Job. They didn't understand themselves. And it put them in a rather awkward place. They were not able to be helpful to Job at all. Now he goes on to say here, If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away. Well, Job actually doesn't know just what he would put away. And yet there was something, as we shall see. Now, verse 15, For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear. He says, if you just deal with the sin that's in your life and quit fighting it, why, you would be heard. And God would answer your prayer and restore you. And then he concludes this discourse in verse 20 by saying, But the eyes of the wicked shall fail, they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. In other words, he's saying to Job, You are going to come to the time when the judgment of God will be upon you unless you confess your secret sin. He predicts there will be absolute and complete judgment of Job. Now, that concludes Zophar's address and actually attack upon Job. And all three friends now have had their little say. Now, Job's going to answer him. This is probably the lengthiest discourse of all that we have here. Then we'll have the second round. This is, you remember, like a game. That is, people in that day enjoyed intellectual discourses. That is, men pitting their minds one against another. Today it's brawn, not brain. And as a result, why we could liken this, that we're coming now to the second round in the fight. Or we could say this is the second inning, if we're talking about baseball. 
and this is the second half if we're talking about basketball or football. And whatever it is, why, they're going to go around again. But now let's listen to Job here, because we're going to be able now to draw some conclusions here that I hope will be of great benefit to us, because that's the purpose of this discourse and the purpose of this book in the Word of God. God has a message here for us. And Job answered and said, No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Now, that's a sarcastic statement, friend, and it's a pretty good one, I want to say. Job says, Well, you fellows act as if you've got all the answers. You're the people, and wisdom will die with you. But he says, But I have understanding as well as you. They're acting as if Job is a simpleton, and they have all the answers. And he says, I'm not inferior to you, yea, who knoweth not such things as these. Now, these men have not spoken into the situation as it really is. And this is the thing that we will notice as we go on in the discourses. But I think at this point, I ought to call it to your attention so you can watch for it. Because here is something, friends, that's important for us today. In place now of leading Job to self-judgment, they only ministered to a spirit of self-vindication. In other words, they make an attack upon Job, and he comes back and defends himself. And as a result, they actually did not introduce God into the scene. They do not speak of a God of mercy and of grace, but a God of law. And he is a God of law, but he's a God of grace and mercy. And they said some true things, but they didn't give him the truth. They brought in experience and tradition and legality, but they didn't bring in the truth, you see. Now, actually, what is happening is just simply this. When they made their incrimination against this man, Job, it caused Job to defend himself. And Job is saying that he's right. And the minute that Job said he's right, we'll come to this later on, that Job, by justifying himself, he's not justifying God, you see. And up to this point, why, it looks as if Job is saying that God is wrong. And God is the one to be criticized. And that's a position a lot of people take today, even a lot of Christian folk. Now, they should have led Job to condemn himself and to vindicate God. And that is something that's very important. Now, we're going to come back to that because that's going to be the very backbone of all of this. All of these utterances that we have here prove how far Job was from that true brokenness of spirit and humility of mind which ever flow from being in the divine presence. Now, his friends never got him into that place where he could say, as Paul said, I know that within me, within my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, or I am what I am by the grace of God. There are too many Christians today that boast of who they are, what they've done, and actually what they give. It looks as if God is over on the receiving side and not on the giving side. 
It looks as if they are superior and that God is not superior. My friend, may I say to you that you and I are not witnessing correctly for God. And I don't care how many people you buttonhole and tell them about Jesus. You and I are not witnessing until you and I take the place, a place of where we're condemned and God is vindicated and God is to be praised and God is to be honored. Now, this is tremendous in this book. Now, let me move on here in chapter 12. This man, Job, now, he's a sick man, but I tell you, he's standing up to these men so far. He says, I am as one mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. The just, upright man is laughed to scorn. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. In other words, he's saying, you fellas, you're in a comfortable position. And you are able to give advice to me, but I'm slipping, I'm falling, and you have no word for me at all. You know, for years, I was a pastor, and I guess the professional enters in. I would go to the hospital, person is sick, maybe die. I'd pat them on the hand, you know, and I'd say, oh, God will be with you, and I'd pray for them, and I'd say, God will lead you, and then I'd walk out. Then the day came. When I went to the hospital, but not to visit anybody, but to lie on that bed myself. And when somebody prayed for me and walked out, I didn't walk out. I stayed there. Now, my friend, I want to say to you, that's a little different position than to be in the other fellow's shoes. Now you're not walking out. You don't even have your shoes on in bed. You're going to be operated on. May I say to you, that's the time that you need somebody to help you and comfort you. And that's what Job is saying all through this chapter here. Now, here in chapter 13, and this is, by the way, a very wonderful chapter. In fact, all of them are here. He says, Lo, mine eye hath seen all this. Mine ear heard and understood it. What ye know, the same do I know also. I am not inferior unto you. Now, you see, he gives all of this, this discourse in the 12th chapter, to show these men that he knows what they know. And they have not told him anything new. They've not been helpful to him at all. Now, he gets to the very crux of the matter. He says, surely I would speak to the Almighty. He says, I want to talk to God. And I desire to reason with God. Or somebody could only been there to tell him about the grace and the mercy of God and how God wanted to help him. But ye are forgers of lies. Ye are all physicians of no value. In other words, Job is saying, you have not diagnosed my case. You are trying to give me treatment. Well, let's say I'm having trouble with diabetes. And you want to take my lungs out. You want to operate on me. You've missed the whole point. Now, notice as he moves on into this section, verse 5, Oh, that you would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. And Job says, the best thing for you to do now is to keep quiet. Because he says, that would be smarter than what you're saying. Because you haven't helped me at all. Now, he speaks back to them, and he says in verse 6, 
Hear now my reasoning, and hearken to the pleadings of my lips. Will ye speak wickedly for God, and talk deceitfully for him? In other words, when they are accusing him of committing some awful sin, and that God is judging him, you see they are dealing deceitfully for God. They are not representing God as they should. Now, Job knows that. He recognized that. But they are not representing God directly. And if they could only bring Job to the place where he could see himself as he really is, but they put him on the defense, and as a result, why, he's making a good case for himself, but it makes it look bad for God, you see. It looks as if God is to blame in this. And these friends hammer him with that, but they're not helping him at all. And so he goes on in that vein here. He says in verse 8, Will ye accept his person? Will ye contend for God? Is it good that he should search you out? Or as one man mocketh another, do ye so mock him? He will surely reprove you if ye do secretly accept persons. Now, Job is coming back at them, and he says, God's going to judge you for misrepresenting. Shall not his excellency make you afraid, and his dread fall upon you? Your remembrances are like unto ashes, your bodies the bodies of clay. Hold your peace. Let me alone, that I may speak, and let come on me what will. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth, and put my life in mine hand? Now, in the midst of all of this, the faith of Job just stands inviolate in spite of the onslaught of his friends, and they've now become a stranger to him, by the way, as we shall see. Verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, this is the great faith of this man Job, even at this point. But They've not got at the root of Job's trouble at all. And that'll come out just a little later, of course. Now, will you notice, we begin to see it here. He says, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. Job says, I can go into the presence of God, and I'm going to defend myself. My friend, the minute that you start defending yourself, you're going to lose your case. When you go in the presence of God... You plead guilty because <laughs> he knows you. And you don't go in the presence of God and get you an attorney and by some little clever routine try to get out of the accusation and try to disannul God's statement that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and is none righteous, no, not one, and the soul that sinneth that shall die. Now, God just doesn't change that at all. And you can't get a smart lawyer that will get you out of that. And you're not going before one of these soft-hearted and soft-headed judges. You're going before the God of this universe, who is the moral ruler. And therefore, the idea that you can go there and plead, and you can maintain your case, the thing to do is just go in and plead guilty and cast yourself upon the mercy of the court. And you'll find out God has a mercy seat. And it's a mercy seat because the blood of Jesus Christ is on it. And he paid the penalty for your sin. 
And my friend, that's the only way you're going to get off. This man, Job here, you can see he needs somebody to really represent God before him and keep him from defending himself and let him cast himself on the mercy of God. This book has a tremendous message, as you can see. Now, I'm going to just move right on down in this section here. And let me read verse 16. He also shall be my salvation. Now, there's glimmers of light that break through on this man's soul. He says, he's going to be my salvation. And that, by the way, is even the teaching of the Old Testament, that God is our salvation. Oh, how David held on to this. David was a great sinner, but he didn't live in sin. He just committed an awful sin. But David, he said, he's my high tower. He's my shield. He's my buckler. He's my salvation. The salvation wasn't a coin that you carried around in your pocket. You might lose it. Salvation's God. And salvation today is Christ. You either have him or you don't have him. You either trust him or you don't trust him. There's no other alternative, friends. There's no man's land between. You can't stand in that place. Either you're for him or against him. And there's none other name under heaven, Peter says, given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the only out for the human family. And so Job has a glimmer of light, and it's marvelous. Evidently, this is in the patriarchal age of the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, somewhere along there. Now he says to them, verse 17, Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Now Job says, listen to me. And I think maybe we ought to listen to him. Shall we listen to him now? Behold now, I've ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Now, the unfortunate thing is, that he's not going to be justified because somebody else has justified him. This man, Job, thinks that he's got a good case, even before God. A lot of people think that today. Oh, I don't mind coming before God. I can stand there. I have news for you. You've already been condemned before God, friends. You're a lost sinner. You live in a little old world today that's a mess. And man's in rebellion against God. And you've got that kind of a heart. This idea today that you are something and you, my, God sure couldn't get along without you. Oh, he can miss you, friends. He could get along without us. But thank God he says he's not. He loves us. And he's made a way for us. So will you listen to this man? He says, I know I'll be justified. I know I will be, but not because I've got a defense myself. I haven't any. I've cast myself upon the mercy of the court. Now listen to Job. Verse 9, Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the goat. You know, this is interesting. Job, at the beginning, he said he wanted to die. Wish he hadn't been born. He wanted to die. Now he says, if I hold my tongue, I'll give up the ghost. All right, Job, if you want to die, why don't you hold your tongue? But he's not. He's going to talk. <laughs> That's the way a little man, we've got a lot to say, all of us have, by the way. Now listen to him, verse 20. Only do not two things unto me, then will I not hide myself from thee. Withdraw thine hand from me, and let not thy dread 
make me afraid. Now, he's telling God what to do. <laughs> oh, a lot of us do that. You know, I hear people say, oh, I tell you, I have unanswered prayer. No, you don't have unanswered prayers. God always answers prayer. He says no. At least he said no to most of mine, but that's an answer. But you see, a lot of our praying is giving orders to God. We're sort of like a top sergeant talking to a buck private in the rear rank. We say, we want this, you do that, and you do the other thing. And God doesn't move that way. And Job's trying to tell the Lord, withdraw thine hand far from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. Job is a frightened man. But God says, I'm not moving according to your plan. I have a plan, and I'm going to work it out in your life. Verse 22, then call thou, and I will answer, or let me speak, and answer thou me. I had the privilege of speaking to a group of college students up at the San Jose State College. They got 25,000 students up there. I never dreamed it was that big a place. And I met with a Christian group. And I was rather amazed to hear some of these young people arguing about prayer. What's the use of praying? Because you can't change God, and you just don't need to do that at all. May I say to you that they reminded me of Job here. Their idea was that God should be one that would come at their beck and call. And they felt like prayer was that. And I tried to make clear to them, I said, look, prayer actually is not to change God. I said, where'd you get that idea that you're going to change God by prayer? I said, the primary purpose of prayer is to change us. I used to have a little motto, and I think it's partially true. It says prayer changes things. Well, I think it does too, but prayer changes us, friends. That's an important thing. If you think that God is a Western Union boy and that all you've got to do is just have him come and deliver a message for you or come and deliver you something, you're wrong. <laughs> That's not it. Job here is telling God what to do. Then I don't point my finger at Job because I've done the same thing. Now, listen to Job here. He says, verse 23, "...how many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and holdest me for thine enemy?" Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro, and wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? The thing is, Job wants a showdown with God, very candid. What he's asking for now, he said, I want to know how many my sins are that he's treating me as he is. And I'm just like a leaf that's being driven to and fro. And you step on it. And I feel like God stepped on me. He says, Verse 27, Thou puttest my feet also in the stocks, and lookest narrowly unto all my paths. Thou settest a print from the heels of my feet. And he as a rotten thing consumeth as a garment that is moth-eaten. He said, well, I'm just rotting away. That's what's happening to me. And he couldn't see the point in it. 